forward is backwards. Now, this is not a vertical Uh, sometimes we find that we need to go forward because we have gone backwards. And yet there are times that we find that the way forward is backwards. And I hope we can see that tonight as we look at this particular passage. Because such is the case before us in the life of Abraham. We see Abraham going forward because he went backward. He had been going forward and then he went backward and thus he had to go backward in order to go forward. Now, if you understand that, uh, uh, wait till you hear the rest of it. Did you get that? Uh, you may feel that the employees of a certain department store, uh, uh, like the employees of a certain department store who received a memo. Here's their memo they received. It was from marketing uh, to sales and the subject was a marketing forecast. Here's how it went. The sales and income figures show an easing up of the rate at which business is easing off. This can be taken as ample proof of the government's contention that there's a slowing down of the slowdown or a slowing up of the slowdown. Now to clarify that, it should be noted that a slowing up of the slowdown is not as good as an upturn in the downturn. On the other hand, it's a good deal better than either a speed-up of the slowdown or a deepening of the downturn. Also, it suggests that the climate is about right for an adjustment of the readjustment to rate structures. Now, turning specifically to rates, we find a very definite decrease in the rate of increase. This clearly shows that you, there should be a letting up of the letdown. Of course, if the slowdown should speed up the decrease in the rate of increase rates, should turn an increase to the rate of the, in, of the decrease. And finally, the inflation of the recession would turn the recession into a depression while the deflation in the rate of the inflation would give the impression of the recession in depression. Now, did you get that? If you're confused about Abraham going forward and then going backward, how confusing would something... You know, it's, it's about like that when you listen to all this news on the television about the fiscal cliff and all that. Uh, I would, you know, wouldn't be surprised to hear some of this kind of talk just in, in the way they're talking these days about the government and the situation that the government and our country is in. But you know, if you're confused about Abraham going forward and then going backward, thus having go, to go backward in order, order to go forward, let's, let's look at the story and the meaning will become clear, I hope, tonight. First of all, we see a distressing, a distressing famine. A distressing famine. Look at uh, chapter 12 of Genesis and we read in verse 10. It says, and there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Abraham had no sooner got started with his life of faith when a distressing famine struck the land. 
Days passed without rain. The sun seared the earth. Plants strained for water until finally a famine gripped the land. Now notice, first of all, though, the where of the famine. The where of the famine. This famine came in the land of Canaan, the place where God had sent Abraham. Abraham was in the will of God, doing the will of God, and suddenly he finds himself in a famine. Ever been there? You say, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do, and I'm going to do what you want me to do. But boy, it sure looks tough. We have the idea that if we know the will of God and do the will of God, then nothing but good things are going to come into our life. You know, the farmer thinks if he does the will of God, he'll have better crops. The salesman reasons that if he does the will of God, he'll have more sales. And sometimes we as pastors assume that if we do the will of God in our church, then our church will grow. For some reason, we think that doing the will of God eliminates us from adversity. Just because you're a Christian does not mean you want to have to you does not mean you want to have to experience trials in your life. Just because you're obeying God does not make you immune to trials. You know, when the famines of life come, we often say to ourselves, you know, I must be out of the will of God. I must not be doing something right. No, the famine may just be a good indication that we are in the will of God. Notice the where. Secondly, notice the when. The when of the famine. The famine came on the heels of Abraham yielding his life and obeying God's call. His triumph was immediately followed by a trial. If I've seen it once, I've seen it many, many times. Sometimes someone gets saved... They give their life to God and they begin to live for Him and it seems like everything goes wrong. I think of the Lord Jesus. You know, John baptized Him and his, He came up out of the water. The voice of the Father was heard to be saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What happened immediately after that? That was in Matthew chapter 3. You look at Matthew chapter 4. Immediately after that, he found himself in the wilderness being tested. There was a blessing which was followed by a battle. And that is often the case in our lives as Christians. There will be a tremendous blessing in our life, and immediately after that, things seem to just go off the deep end. So we've seen the where of the famine, the when of the famine. Notice the why of the famine. The famine was a testing of his faith. This was the first of many tests that would come in Abraham's life. The famine was a test designed to develop and to mature his faith. Someone has said that a smooth sea never made a good sailor. Another one said that we learn the ropes of life by the knots untying. You see, God is more interested in us making what we ought to be than in giving us what we think we ought to have. It was Andrew Murray that said, In times of trouble, God's trusting child may say first, He brought me here. It is His will that I'm in this straight place. 
he will next he will keep me here in his love and he gave uh, and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child and then he will make the trial a blessing teaching me the lessons he intends for me to learn and working in the grace that he means to bestow you know when the storm comes the lightning and the thunder the flashing and the crashing around us can be kind of scary at times did you know that lightning has a purpose Plants would die if it weren't for lightning. By the way, when I used to have a lawn, I always kind of hoped for a thunderstorm once in a while. Not just for the rain, but for the lightning. My lawn would look greener after the lightning storm. Lightning has a purpose. The air is filled with food that we can't see. It's a gas called nitrogen. And the plants can't use it until it becomes nitrates. And what turns nitrogen into nitrates? Lightning. Sometimes we think, oh, this lightning is terrible. When lightning flashes in the sky, the electricity makes the change. And if there were no lightning, there would not be enough nitrates and all the plants would die. Now, God allows us to face the storms and go through the famines of life in order to build us and bless us. The famines of life may be distressing, but they are for our good. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you you know most of the time when the trials come we say oh how can i get out of this i can't wait until this is over when we ought to say what can i get out of it not when can i get out of it but what can i get out of it so there was a distressing famine secondly notice there was a disturbing failure the disturbing failure now as you know when the tests of life come we don't always pass the test Sometimes the grade we get is a big fat F. There are times when we find that our faith shrinks when washed with affliction. Every event that happens in life can draw us closer to God or draw or drive us away from God. In Abraham's case, he failed the first faith exam of his life. Instead of allowing it to bring him closer to God, he allowed it to take him away from God. No, notice we see where he traveled. Where he traveled. Notice again, verse 10, and there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. Now this is the first time that Egypt is mentioned in the Bible. Egypt in the Bible is a type of the world. And when a believer is in Egypt, most of the time it's a type of a believer being out of God's will and away from God. We see Abraham turning to the world for help. We see him leaving the spiritual for the physical. Instead of looking to God, we see him leaving God. And so just want to say that, you know, when you find Egypt mentioned the first time in the Bible, we have that principle of 
interpretation of the first mention principle. And again, most of the time you'll find that Egypt is a picture of being out of the will of God. Abram was in a land, and this was a place of blessing. He was in the land where God had told him to go. God never told him to leave. God never told him to go to Egypt. But there was a famine in the land, and I think one morning Abraham pushed back the flap of his tent and looked out and said, you know, Sarah, it looks like everybody's going to Egypt. There's a famine, you know, and it's getting worse. Maybe we ought to just get out of town. Now the Bible says in Isaiah 31 and verse 1, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Abraham should have remembered what God had promised him. He should have known that God would take care of him. But instead, he took things in his own hands and he found himself out of the will of God. He should never have doubted in the dark what God told him in the light. Look back at Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. It says, And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east, and there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. It was at Bethel that he had pitched his tent, built his altar. Bethel, of course, means the house of God. Abraham found himself out of the will of God and out of the house of God. Abraham is like so many believers that once served God, and they're out of God's house, and they're out of God's will. And they're out there in the world, trying to look for help. Well, Sarah probably answered Abram when he said they should go to Egypt. You know, anything you want to do, Abram, I'm your wife, and I'll go with you. And so they went. So notice, secondly here, what he told we see where he traveled. Notice what he told. We've seen where he traveled, and before we see what he told, I want you to notice that God had not told him to do this. When God had appeared to him the last time, he had said this, This is it, Abraham. This is the land I'm going to give you. You will be a blessing, and I'm going to bless you here. But you see, Abraham, Abraham didn't believe God. He went down into the land of Egypt. He went down to the world. You know, it's amazing how the world draws Christians today. So many times we rationalize and we come up with the most amazing excuses. Oh, you know, I'll not be able to come to church on Sunday because I have to get up and go to work on Monday morning. Well, everybody's got to do that. Unless you're a preacher, you don't have to get up and go to work on Monday morning. No, everybody's got to get up and go to work. It's amazing how we can go places during the week and we stay up all night and watch a TV program or a movie, but we still go to work the next day. But Sunday, especially Sunday night, we say, oh, I've got to get to work on Monday morning, so I can't go to church on Sunday night. I've had people say to me they just didn't, think that they were interested in attending 
even a small church. I've seen the Lord has given me the privilege to pastor small churches. And uh, our church here tonight is a big church compared to some of the churches I've pastored. Uh, I've preached to my wife and my kids and one deacon. That's all who showed up on a night like this. So we got a real crowd here tonight. But you know, some people, they say, you know, I, I'm just not interested in, in a small church. They didn't want to become a part of the struggles. I've had people say, you know, a small church struggles so, so much. I just don't want to be a part of that. You know, and there aren't any children's programs and there aren't any youth programs. You know, people will rationalize and excuse their behavior, and, and that's what Abraham did. I think that if you had met Abraham going down to Egypt and had said, uh, and said, wait a minute, Abraham, you're going the wrong direction. You should be staying in the land. Abraham would have probably given you a good reason. He might have said, well, look at my sheep. They're getting pretty thin. And there's not any pasture for them. And since there's plenty of grazing land for them down in Egypt, we're going to go down there. And so that's where they went. You know, there are some places that encourage a person to sin. You get in the world and it, and it wants to be, it won't be long that you'll be behaving like the world. Look at verse 11 and 13 here of chapter 12. It says, And it came to pass when he was come near to the, enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. I was reading something very interesting in connection with this passage, as you probably know. Along, over along the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, the ancient scrolls were found in caves there. Of course, they're known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And at first, the unbelieving scholars thought they'd really found something that would disprove the Bible. But that certainly was not the case. Because among the scrolls was a set that, they, that could not be unrolled because it was so fragile. They had been, it had been wrapped so long that they, it would just shatter and come to pieces. But they could see a little bit of the printing on there, and they saw one name, and they saw the name Lamech. So they called this, the, uh, this part the Book of Lamech. And they said uh, it was said to be one of the apocryphal books of the Bible. But they were wrong. The nation of Israel bought them, and in a museum, the experts began to moisten them and soften them until they could be unrolled. And the scholars found that they contained Genesis chapter 12 through 15. Not in the Bible text, but rather an interpretation of it. In the part that deals with chapter 12, it tells about the beauty of Sarah actually describing her features and how beautiful she was. And it confirms what we read about her in the Word of God. 
Now, I understand that the same scroll gives the description of Abraham's exploration after God told him to walk through the land and the length of it and the breadth of it. That's found in Genesis chapter 13. But the scroll gives the first-person account of Abram of his journey. It confirms what the Bible has said about the land's beauty and the fertility. And the eyewitness, whether or not it was really Abraham, certainly confirmed the Bible record. But here we see the problem that Abram faced and how he handled it dishonestly. Abraham hadn't been in Egypt very long when he began to act and behave just like the world. His wife, Sarai, was a head-turner. She was a 65-year-old knockout. Abraham was worried that they were going to kill him and take her, so he came up with the idea of telling them that she was his sister. Now, actually, that was a half-truth because Genesis chapter 20, verse 11 and 12, tells us that Sarai was his half-sister, but a half-truth is still a whole lie. A lie is a lie, no matter how you excuse it. Abraham, the believer, is acting like an unbeliever. He's out of the will of God and the house of God and behaving like there is no God. Abraham is like many who have been saved and were at one time living for the Lord, and now they're out of God's will, they're out of God's house, and they're living out in the world, and they're living just like the world. You couldn't tell by their behavior that they're not of the world. Years ago, when there were no cars and, and uh, uh, motorized vehicles, a woman needed a new coachman. She advertised and interviewed three applicants, and she asked each of them the same question. You know the steep hill just outside of town, that narrow spot where the road drops into a gully? How close could you drive my coach to the edge without losing your nerve? First man said, Madam, if the wheels of that coach came within six inches of the edge, I would feel quite safe. The second man said, Madam, I reckon even if one of the wheels went clean over the edge, I would still hold the horses and recover the coach without any harm. Well, the third man said, Madam, I would keep that coach as far away from that gully as I possibly could. That was the man that got the job, by the way. You know, we as believers must stay away from the world as far as we possibly can. When we find ourselves away from God and in the world, we find ourselves doing the things that an unchristian would do or a non-believer or, or that would be unchristlike. And we see here how disgraced he was. Look at, at chapter 12 here in verse 14. It says, And it came to pass that when Abram was come unto Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that, was, uh, that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram for well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and she asses. Uh, he had asses and, and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because Sarai, Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why dost thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why, dost thou she, uh, why sayest, saidest thou she is my sister? 
so I might have taken her to be my wife. Now therefore, behold, thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that, she had, all that he had. Pharaoh took Sarai into his house. He compensated Abraham very well, but when God shook Pharaoh's house to the foundation, somehow Pharaoh knew that Abraham was behind the judgment of God upon his house. Pharaoh asked him, what have you done? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you lie to me? I read where one commentator said, in all pagan the uh, Pharaoh the pagan cut a finer figure than Abraham the believer. And many times, unbelievers are smarter than we as believers. Here's a believer standing in disgrace before an unbeliever. Someone has said it was not a pretty sight, but the effects of sin are never pretty. When Abraham should have been a witness, he was a disgrace. I can imagine that Abraham left Egypt and Pharaoh said, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want to be one. You know, there are many who once served God that are out of the will of God, and they're out of the house of God, whose testimony has been ruined. The biography of George Armstrong Custer by James Warner Bella reads in its entirety, to put it mildly, this was an oddball. To put it mildly. There are those who are disgraced to the name of Christ. What a tragedy that is. Now like Abraham, they got out of the will of God and the house of God and into the world. And so we see a distressing famine, a disturbing failure, and then lastly, notice this, the desired fellowship. The desired fellowship. After being disgraced and disciplined for his failure, Abraham wants to be back where he used to be, and he wanted to be back where God would bless him and use him. And I'm glad that our failures need not be final, and they need not be fatal. We can come back to God. Now notice what it takes to come back to God. First, there must be a renouncing where you have been. You must renounce where you have been. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, it says, And Abram went out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. In Genesis 12, 9, we saw there that Abraham going toward the south. Now in Genesis 13, 1, we see him going into the south. Finally, Genesis 13 and verse 3 we see him going from the south. It says in verse 2 that Abram was rich in cattle and silver and gold, and he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai. He was forsaking the place of his failure. He's renouncing Egypt. He's turning his back on the world. He had all of Egypt that he wanted. He's leaving and he's heading Back to God. Now, the first step in coming back to God is confession and repentance. It's a turning your back on the world and all that it has to offer. It's like the songwriter who said, I bid farewell to the way of the world to walk in it nevermore. The Bible tells us in James 4 and verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? 
Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. If you're going to be a friend of God, you must let go, say goodbye, and turn your back on the world. Renounce where you've been. Furthermore, there must, you must return you must return to where you were. In verse 3, it says he went back to that place between Bethel and Ai. In verse 4, it says, Unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. You see, the way forward is backward. He had to go back to where he had been before. He went back to the very place that he had left. He went back to Bethel where he had been at the beginning. To get back to the place of God's blessing, you have to come back from where you left God. You have to get back into the house of God, into the will of God. He came back to the place where his altar was. He came back to the place where he had first worshipped God. He came back to the place where he had first pitched his tent. He came to the place where he had said, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. You see, the way forward is backward. Although we may stumble and we may fall, we can come back to God. There's always a way back to the altar. There was for Abram. There was for the prodigal son. And there is for you and me. The Lord is always ready and willing to open His arms and receive us back. Now, if we were to summarize this portion, we could do it this way. It is always a downward path. It led Him down from the uh, land of promise. It led Him down from the land of preparation. It led Him down from the land of provision. It was a dishonest path. Abraham birthed a lie. Abram became a lie. Abram believed the lie. It was a disastrous path because of the potential, because of the punishment, and because of the prophets. It's always a disappointing path because of the testimony it forfeits, because of the things it forgets, because of the tragedy it fosters. I wonder, where is your tent pitched this evening? Are you camping in Canaan? firmly fixed in the land of blessing, victory and testimony, or have you gone down to Egypt? You know, all it takes to go get down to Egypt is a little compromise, and there, before you know it, you'll be miles away from the Lord. You will never prosper as long as you're not where God wants you to be. And so, the invitation is, Come home, rebuild your altar, and live for Jesus like he saved you to do. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the lesson that we can learn from Abraham. Lord, it's easy to be attracted to the things of the world. We think that that's the answer to our problems when really the answer to our problems is just to put our faith in our trust in what you've promised and that you'll see us through the difficulty difficult times and the the trials but we must stay in the center of your will in your house 
in the will of the Lord, doing that which you would have us to do. Lord, help us to be obedient to your word. Help us to even learn from the lessons from Abram. Help us not to have to experience these things on our own. But Lord, to take heed to the word of God. And so we pray your blessing upon each life here tonight. That your will would be done. That you would help us. Even though there's distressing times. There's disturbing failures. There's a desired fellowship that we have with you. Thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.